Hey, this is Al Petrari from the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, and you're with my buddy John over at Iron City Rocks. See you guys soon. Hello and welcome to episode 36 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John. The Iron City Rocks podcast is a podcast devoted to promoting Pittsburgh's rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues music scene. In episode 36, we're going to take a very special chance to speak to guitarist and musical director from the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, Al Petrelli. The Trans-Siberian Orchestra will be in town this weekend on the April. April 4th at the Benetton Center. Tickets available at pghearts.org. I'm, before we get into the interview, I'd like to play you a song from their latest album, which is actually a non-holiday album called Night Castles. This song is a track called Believe. Then we'll go straight into the interview. So after all these one night stands You've ended up with heart and hand A child alone on your own retreating Regretful for the things you're not And all the things you haven't got Without a home Heart of stone lies bleeding And for all the roads you follow And for all you did not find And for all the dreams you had to leave behind I am the way, I am the light in the dark inside the night I hear your hopes, I feel your dreams And in the dark I hear your screams Don't turn away, just take my hand And when you make your final stand I'll be right there, I'll never leave And all I ask Was so intense while bothering your innocence. For bits such string, you blown up wings you needed. But when you had to add them up, you found that they were not enough to get you in and pay for sin. And for all the years you borrowed And for all the tears you had And for all the fears you had to keep inside I am the way, I am the light I am the dark 
Welcome to the show from the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, Al Petrelli. How are you doing today, Al? I'm doing great, Joe. Thanks for taking time out to talk to me today. Absolutely. Um, for those not familiar, the Trans-Siberian Orchestra will be making a special non-holiday uh, tour appearance on Sunday, April 4th, at the Benenham Center, uh, doing Beethoven's Last Night Tour 2010. So we wanted... Uh, take an opportunity to talk to a, a guy with an incredible resume musically, um, see kind of what your background is, what we can expect from the TSO, um, the future of the TSO, that kind of stuff. So, Al, you were um, born in New York and you attended Berkeley, correct? 
Yeah, I, I was born and raised in New York, and I made it um, up to Boston. I, I lasted about a semester and a half or two semesters. It was a great facility, um, but I kind of had my uh, a different idea, I guess would be the nice way to say it, of, of what I wanted to learn and what I needed to do. But I did have the opportunity to meet some terrific players up there and uh, musicians from all over the world and get a lot of insight to different styles of playing and different interpretations of, of music. So it was a pretty good learning experience for a short time. Yeah, I know. You were you were there at the same time, Derek, from the original keyboardist of Dream Theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Derek Sherini and myself, uh, Will Calhoun, who went on later to uh, form Living Color, you know, a bunch of other yeah. guys, you know, some, just some really serious players. We were just a bunch of, like, crazy kids, you know. But we all shared a common desire to, to try to be as good as we could at our individual instruments and as an ensemble. Um, so that was a lot of fun, you know, and it's nice to run into those guys all these years later and just, you know, kind of check in and see how everybody did. Yeah, it's amazing how many people went through that school and how many, I don't know what you learned in the first semester, but how many amazing musicians I've talked to that haven't finished the program and are still, you know, lifelong professional musicians, incredible uh, players. It must be a heck of a heck of a camp. Well, it really um, is. I mean, they, there's a legacy attached to it. I mean, you know, going back to the 70s with you know, all sorts of great players coming through there. And I think, you know, um, you get in there and there's, there's a certain amount of respect and homage you pay to, the, you know, um, the faculty and the curriculum in the building. And it, it's like anything else, man. It's, it, it's You get out of it as much as you put into it. You know, it's not like they have this magic elixir that you take and all of a sudden, wham, you're Steve Vai. I mean, you you got to really cut your teeth and do your homework and, and be disciplined enough to work and work and work. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there are quite a few. I mean, my wife, who's a piano player with TSO with me, uh, she attended school there with Steve Vai. You know, it was her, Steve Vai, Dave Rosenthal, and a couple other characters from that era. And, you know, just the level of, of virtuosity, you know, is pretty incredible. Sure, absolutely. Now, um... You started your uh, career, you worked with the likes of Michael Bolton, I believe, at one point, Danger Danger, kind of sure. before they started. Now, this was back when Michael was still doing kind of uh, harder rock, am I correct? Yeah, it was back in the day. He had a, um, a, a song on the radio that did fairly well for himself uh, called Fool's Game, and I got involved with him not too long after that when he had a record out called Everybody's Crazy. Um, he, he, he was still kind of, you know, being like a solo hard rock singer, guitar player, songwriter. Uh, but the irony of it all is that's actually when I met Paul O'Neill for the first time because Michael was handled by um, a management company that Paul was involved with. So that was kind of our first introduction to each other. And it took a couple of years for us to actually, you know, put something together and work together. But that's when I really started learning about the music business and, and what it takes to really kind of not only uh, thrive in it, but just to basically survive in this business. You've done, I, I would say, you know, I actually have your resume in front of me. You worked with the likes of Alice Cooper, Asia, obviously Sabotage, and uh, probably your highest profile when you were with Megadeth for uh, mm-hmm. earlier in the decade. Um, yeah, I've been pretty fortunate. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's certainly, uh, I would classify that as maybe a little more beyond surviving. But specifically, <laughs> yeah. you get yeah. How did you get involved with Sabotage? And can you kind of maybe take us through how, you know, a, a band that was, you know, pretty heavy, Sabotage wasn't exactly pop pop metal, mm-hmm. how that came the phenomenon and it kind of morphed into the phenomenon that is the TSL? Is there such a parallel there? <laughs> well, it's, it's a pretty neat story. Um, 
uh, again, meeting Paul back in the early 80s, uh, he was um, getting into production a lot more. He, he had done a couple of the live Aerosmith albums. Uh, he was working with Michael Shanker, um, and he did the Badlands record, and we had some mutual friends who were in that band. So I really enjoyed Paul's work, and he was becoming known as a guitar player's uh, producer. Anyway, uh, the original guitar player in Sabotage, Chris Oliva, passed away, unfortunately, um, I guess maybe in the early 90s. And Paul was in the studio with his brother, John Oliva, Chris's brother, John, and they were putting um, the songs together for an album called Dead, Winter, Dead, which was, um, I think, the spring of 1995. They were working on it. And Paul had a pretty um, clear vision as to what kind of guitar player he wanted to work on this record with him. And I, I guess he went through, you know, the, the, the yellow pages of guitar players. And, you know, all these guys are great, but there was something specifically that Paul was looking for that he couldn't find. Uh, for some reason, he chose me. Um, he got a hold of me just in, in a strictly in a session capacity, and he said, "Look, dude, I really need to finish this record. I, you know, we're running out of money. Atlantic wants the album done. Will you help me out?" I'm like, "Yeah, dude, I'd love to. Give us a chance to actually break bread after all these years of work together." So anyway, we got in the studio. He put up the faders on some of the songs. And I was like, "You know, this stuff is awesome." But you got to remember, this is 1995. You know, at this point, all you know the the metal bands, the rock bands from the 80s were over and it was all the Seattle movement there was a big rap thing going on and all that stuff so I, I said you know I love your music I don't know who's going to buy it but what the hell let's make a good record together and right around that moment is when he threw the faders up on a song called Christmas Eve Sarajevo now okay. I had played what's that? It's certainly a legendary oh, yeah, track yeah. now but in yeah I mean you know that became the centerpiece of everything that we, we, we've been known for now um, but I had played in Yugoslavia in 1990 with Alice Cooper um, and we played Zagreb and Belgrade, and I made a lot of friends over there. And unfortunately, not too long after we played is when the war broke out, and a lot of those people that I had met were killed. So when Paul started explaining his, his rock opera and the story behind this album, Dead Winter Dead, I immediately got it. You know, I mean, it just kind of struck such a chord with me that I understood exactly what he wanted, what he's looking for, and there's a certain mournful approach that was taken while I was recording that record. So we developed a really good relationship because my job as a musician is to translate what the producer wants or what the guy has in his head that he wants to appear on, I was going to say, on tape. Back then we were using tape. Nowadays it's on hard drives. But, you know, it, it's basically a game of translation. And I understood Paul's vision crystal clear like I thought of it myself. And we started working together, and he's like, that's what I needed. Anyway, make a long story even longer. Uh, we finished that record, and by the winter of 95, they put the album out. And magically, it ended up, that song ended up in the hands of a couple radio DJs in America, and it became the number one requested song in America really quickly. I mean, the phones lit up on that. So, you know, Paul, um, our managers, Adam Linden, Kenny Kaplan, and the folks at Atlantic realized, you know, you're on to something here. And that's when Paul, who'd been kicking around this idea of fusing together um, classical music and heavy metal and writing one of his Frank Capra-esque stories, uh, weaving that through, you know, some of these uh, soundtracks we put together, that he just said, you know what, I want to take that song, I'm going to make that the centerpiece, I want to write a record around that, we're going to call it the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. I was like, yeah, cool, whatever. <laughs> Sounds like a fun couple months to spend with you. What's ever going to come? And that was it. Many, many Here we are, 15 years later. later. Yeah. He's a pretty brilliant guy and he's had a clear vision as to what he wanted. I mean, he'd been thinking about this probably since 1978, you know, in the post, 
you know, the Who, you know, between Quadrophenia and Tommy and Pink Floyd's The Wall, and, you know, when rock opera's back then, Alice Cooper's Welcome to My Nightmare, you know, when, when, when they weren't just individual songs, they were a collective soundtrack to something a little bit bigger. And, you know, Paulie really wanted to, to work on that and do that, and, and that's what he's accomplished. So I'm really proud of what he's done with himself. Yeah, I, I have to say that the the one man that comes to my mind when I think of Paul O'Neill, Jim Steinman from the media. Absolutely. Actually, sure. I mean, you, you make a record that is, is important from the moment it starts to the moment it ends, and there's such a journey exactly. in the tracks. Yeah, and each one of those songs individually holds up, but when you put the puzzle back together, it becomes even that much more poignant. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, I that... can't think in big terms like that, dude. I, you know, I'm not that smart. I'm lucky if I can get through a three-minute song. Yeah, just tell me what I need to play. Now, do you um, did, did, when did you start to see the crossover? I mean, one of the things that struck me when I went to see TSO live for the first time is that I was surrounded by people that were forty, fifty, sixty with kids and family, mm-hmm. and you know, you went from you know sabotage and gutter ballet and you know pretty rocking band to sort of a, a brand of almost family entertainment without selling your soul. I mean, you didn't become like... We didn't change anything. We just keep doing what we're doing. I mean, that was from day one. I mean, when it hit radio, it transcended every radio format. You know, it, I mean, back then it was AOR radio, or album-oriented rock, you know. Um, it, it went from there to AC to CHR to, you know, AAA. I mean, every format picked up on a Christian um, stations were, were playing this track. You know, that's the beauty of music. You got to understand, when I was a kid in the 60s, we had one radio station in New York. It was WABC AM, okay? And that was the only game in town, dude. You heard everything from songs from South Pacific and West Side Story to Frank Sinatra to Gladys Knight to the Beatles to the Beach Boys and everything in between. So there wasn't any segregated radio formats going on. It was just, this is what it is. And it was really weird all these years later that we put a song out and it just went to every format. And the first time we played a show at the Tower Theater in 99, I remember Johnny Lee Middleton and I hit the stage with Chris Caffrey and we looked out in the audience and we thought we were dead. I mean, you had a kid in a Slayer t-shirt sitting next to his grandma with a crocheted reindeer sweater on. We didn't know whether to turn up, turn down, or run. You know, but we just yeah. kind of stood on ground and did what it is that we do, and they all reacted. And that's one of the proudest parts of this. One of the things I'm most proud of, I should say, is that we've you know reached an audience that runs from seven to seventy-five. You know, yeah. And we're not, you know, this isn't some facade that we've developed or or, or anything fraudulent, man. We're just being us, and people appreciate it for its honesty and its integrity. Yeah, I mean, anytime you can, like you said, you've got a kid in a Slayer shirt who's not embarrassed to be there. Hey, yeah, with his grandma, exactly. And she yeah, the families come them. out together and they can enjoy themselves. It's really something special. Yeah, that's that's phenomenal. Now, um, you've had in the past. Beethoven's last night was sort of a uh, you know, called a non-holiday album, um, mm-hmm. and several holiday albums, obviously, that have become quite well known. But Night Castle specifically, I know it's been a long time coming. Um, do you want to talk about, you know, were you involved? I know you were co-giving, co-writing credits on some of the songs, but uh, mm-hmm. out, of, out of the writing and recording, you've got a, a, a army of musicians involved in that. How do, how do you go about putting a project of that magnitude together? That's a really daunting task. Um, I mean, you basically start out with Paul's idea. You know, again, Paul O'Neill, who is, you know, the mastermind of CSO and the twitch in my left eye. 
he uh, he'll come up with a story in his head and he'll start saying, okay, let's start coming up with some songs. Could be anything, dude. It could be you know a Leon Russell-esque type track. It could be something real heavy. It could be something with an acoustic guitar. It could be anything it is. That's the beauty of it. You know, we're not really sure where he's going. We're just going to keep throwing ideas onto what we call the kitchen table at his writing apartment. And uh, he'll start collecting these things and decide which one fits his story. Uh, then the, the problem is, is that, you know, not only do we have to have these songs sung, but they have to be sung by different singers for different character roles in his story. And so we take quite a while to work on the arrangements, the keys, the tempos, all that stuff, just to make sure that it fits the voice. I mean, it's cool because it's not that we have one lead singer and we have to write all the songs you know, with that voice in mind. We can write anything we want. It could be an opera for a soprano. It could be an opera for a baritone. It could be anything. Uh, you know, We have such a large um, stable of brilliant talent that's become part of the Trans-Siberian Orchestra that we're okay. And Paul gets to run with it. It's, it you know, it's kind of like having a Ferrari, and you can just drive any speed you want at any time you want. You know, you're going to be out there for a while having fun, and at some point you got to kind of put the car away and put it in the garage. Um, it, it took a little longer than we would have liked to make that record, but one of the things that Paul says is it'll be done when it's done. I'm not putting it out until I feel that this is the best it can be, and I think he's accomplished that. Yeah, I mean, it's another example, as I said, from start to finish, and this one's spanning two discs. Um, doesn't really leave you flat anywhere. No, it really doesn't. I mean, it takes you on a really nice journey, and there's a lot of real intense musicality on that record, so we're very, very proud of it. Yeah, and as you mentioned, if you're, you know, you've got so many different flavors of vocalists and guitarists and things like that. You know, you take a track with Jeff Scott Soto, um, you know, no stranger to the metal world, you throw a track with Tim Hockenberry that is absolutely mind-blowing. Yeah, exactly. You know, completely different voices, completely different vocal styles, but it fits. You know, it doesn't sound like, you know, you glued 25 songs together. No, 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 no. There's a cohesiveness to it that that's, you know, that's one of Paul's many talents is, you know, developing this line or this commonality that runs like a thread you know, throughout the whole thing. So somehow he makes it all make sense, dude. And he's got all this bottled up in that big brain of his. So God oh, bless him. Um, another, another huge component to the TSO is the show, the, the, called The Spectacle. Uh, mm -hmm. I was lucky enough to see the TSO and KISS's most recent tour within about a week and a half of each other. Right. And you've got to be the two greatest shows on the road as far as... Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, and I don't give that compliment lightly. I mean, you you get give a visual spectacle that mm -hmm. uh, is. Well, we all grew up in the '70s going to these arena rock shows. You know, I mean, you know, going to see Floyd, going to see uh, Yes, going to see um, Oh God, The Who, Aerosmith, Kiss. You know, I mean, thank you for mentioning us in the same sentence as those guys. So. You know, Paul always said, you know, making a great record is half the battle. The other half of the battle is presenting that record in a way that, you know, the folks who, the community that likes you will go there and, and with great anticipation look forward to, okay, what are they going to do this year? What are they going to blow up? You know, that's yeah. all part of the fun of being in a rock and roll band, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I refuse to live anything past 1978, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the days of Zeppelin and, and early ACDC and all that stuff, that's it for me, dude. Alice Cooper, Bowie, Queen. You know, yeah. when you went to an arena, man, you sat down and could not wait not only to hear your songs, but to, to see your songs come to life. And that, that's something that we've decided early on that we're going to do. Yeah, I mean, and I, I, a little bit younger than you, not a ton, unfortunately, but I mean, I remember going to see a band like 
you know, David Lee Roth as a solo act. And it, Absolutely. Maybe not was I and Billy Sheehan? Oh, my God. Yeah, wow, there's a band. Um, which is yeah. Peter but, Brink, I mean, I mean, that was just, that was over-the-top musicianship with great production. I mean, Van Halen was another band that just, you know, they would stop your heart beating it, it live, man. I mean, it was just bigger than life, larger than life. And, and these are the things that we learned from those guys, and, you know, we took it and kind of ran with it. And I, I have to say, as a fan of that stuff, it's great to see a band taking that back to the live show. Absolutely. Now, um, as far as is the Beethoven's Last Night Tour, you're playing some different size venues, maybe as not necessarily all just arenas. You'll be playing the Benetton Center when you come to town. I mean, if you had to kind of scale the show back, or is there anything different we should expect? No, I mean, look, I, I think that it was appropriate for a couple of reasons. You know, we're starting something brand new. Um, you know, it's a completely different show, a different story, different music. Uh, and I thought that going back to the theaters, I mean, where we began in 99 was kind of poignant. You know, let, let's kind of go back to where we cut our teeth. Let's put the show in a more intimate setting. Let's let, you know, the community that's been coming out to see us uh, during the holidays, you know, in the winter tour, um, and some hopefully some new people that are curious to see what we're doing, let them come sit down in these beautiful buildings and pay tribute to, you know, the great composer uh, and Paul's mm -hmm. story. Um, I don't think it's scaled down with the exception of, well, there's always so much real estate that you have in the theater versus an arena. But if if you're familiar with our live show, you'll know that Paul will stick more stuff in there that can actually fit, and it will be way over the top as usual. I mean, maybe the, the the explosion will be a tiny bit smaller, a little less fire. If I don't pull, I doubt it. <laughs> but you you never know. I mean, and there's also an intimacy to the story that um you know with, with our video curtains and our narrator Brian Hicks and the way the the songs are coming to life with, with some of the singers. Um, you know, uh, there there's moments where it becomes really bombastic, but there's some really you know um, sensitive moments that are even as powerful. Yeah. Well, as far as the future for the PSO, do we should we expect another holiday album, holiday tour, or is this still kind of a canvas is blank and Paul's mind is yet to to paint the picture? I, I would say it's a little bit of all of that, you know. I mean, obviously, you know, the winter tour is something that you know we enjoy doing, and we're going to continue doing it. We've become part of a lot of people's uh, holiday tradition, as a lot of those people have become part of our tradition. Um, I know that you, the only thing I can tell you with any certainty is that I have no idea what Paul will be up to next. He really enjoys this thing he's created called rock theater. Um, it, yeah. It's kind of a whole new thing. And, um, you know, it's about as blank a canvas as you can get within the parameters of Paul already has probably written in his head and what he wants to do and how this is going to unfurl over the next 10 years. So I'm along as his co-pilot for the riot. Um, he hasn't shown me the flight plan, but whatever it is, I bet you it's going to be a lot of fun. Now, do you have any other irons in the fire? I know, like, John Olivia's got a CD coming out, and, um, I mean, is there, should we expect more from Sabotage down the road, or do you... I would hope so. I'm, um, you know, Sabotage needs an exclamation point at the end of a very long story, which, you know, would be a nice way to kind of say goodbye. Uh, I don't know if that's ever going to come to be. Um, I would certainly embrace uh, being invited to be part of it I'd love to as far as you know anything that I'm doing this is a full-time job <laughs> you know the only Certainly, thing I do yeah. when we're done with this is I sleep for a couple of days and then go back to work with Paul so you know th this is a big enough iron that I'm you know just managing to the best of my ability yeah I mean it's certainly no small piece. you actually serve as the musical director for the west coast version of the winter tour mm -hmm. yeah and that's that's got to be quite a 
quite an undertaking in itself. All right, it's Alex, a big responsibility, but it just means I yell the loudest. That's all that is. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. Al, I want to thank you for taking the time. Again, the show is on Sunday, April 4th at the Benetton Center. You can get tickets at cghart.org. Um, expecting a great show. I believe it starts at 7.30. Um, is it going to be kind of the two sets with an intermission still? No, yeah, there'll be no the intermission. Form. We're just going to kind of run with the ball, and we're going to take everybody on a bit of a journey, and it'll be a lot of fun. Excellent. All right, Al, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us today. Well, thank you for speaking with me this afternoon, and I look forward to seeing everybody in a couple of days.
Alright, that was the title track from the Trans-Siberians' latest release called Night Castle. We'd like to thank Al Petrelli for uh, making himself available to talk to us in advance of their show and also thank Caitlin Lindsay for arranging the interview for us. Again, the Trans-Siberian Orchestra will be here on April 4th to play the Benetton Center. That is Easter Sunday. The show begins at 7.30 p.m. Tickets available at pghearts.org. So uh, I'm sure there's still plenty of great seats available for that. I had the opportunity to see them on their uh, last holiday tour. Uh, came around, I believe it was early December of 2009. An amazing show you got to see. Uh, this tour, I uh, believe this is their first non-holiday tour, so a unique experience. They will be doing the CD Beethoven's Last Night in its entirety, so that's something special to listen for. We hope you enjoyed the show. You can find more information about us out at www.ironcityrocks.com. You'll find links to our MySpace, Twitter, Facebook, and all that great stuff. Also, a concert calendar, that a uh, pretty comprehensive list of most of the shows coming to the Pittsburgh area, so we hope you check that out as well. Thank you. Thank you.